Welcome to Nostalgia Marcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we will look back on the pop cultural ephemera that remains in our cultural zeitgeist today and try to understand why we remain enchanted all these years later. This week, we will be revisiting... Nineteen ninety one's "Smells Like Teen Spirit" was the musical equivalent of the moon landing. Uh, there are a handful of moments in musical history where things got completely turned upside down, uh, but it's hard to think of a single song that had a greater impact than that one. And so, it's uh, with that song uh, playing, we'll be kicking off our discussion of grunge music, the the sound of the early nineties. Not only just Nirvana's contribution, but all of the bands that that really made the this musical tapestry for those five or so years what it was. Uh, but I am not doing this alone. Again, I have a guest. I'm really excited to introduce him. He is a member of the LA-based comedy troupe Lost Moon Radio. So please do yourself a favor and Google that uh, for a good time. Uh, also, he has a, a band that's available for hire if you're curious called the Moon Units. So please welcome to the podcast Dylan Riss. Hello. So, Dylan, uh, grunge was your pick when I approached you to, to come on the podcast. Can you uh, talk about why? Yeah, I think that um, there are, when, on the topic of nostalgia, there are things in the past that I think that I perhaps nostalgize just because, oh, it was in the past and it's just part of a memory. And then there's things that I nostalgize because I genuinely liked them at the time. And grunge music was something that was pretty cool for me because it was a period where popular music like what was actually popular actually aligned with my own taste whereas i feel like for much of my life certainly in music but other things too movies and tv and other stuff often what i like isn't what's actually popular so this was like this rare when i was coming of age and you were as well um it was this rare uh venn diagram of my own personal taste and uh i guess the public's at large only for a few years so I certainly remember this kind of overtaking everything in 1991. I was in seventh grade, I think, at that time when, when Nevermind dropped. And it's not the, the first grunge music, but, I mean, by far the most explosive version of it that just, like I said, at that point, all music stopped. <laughs> that Like, previous music was just shoved aside, and everyone said, it's grunge time now. And it was right at the age where I was beginning to really discover music and what it was like. I was generally aware of music in the 80s as a kid of like, okay, Michael Jackson's very popular. Madonna's very popular. So, because those things were inescapable. But this was the first time I was starting to really, you know, buy music and consume music and understand music. And so, yeah, this came along and just, it, it became everything. Yeah. And it was, it also coincided with a time when rock music in general was kind of popular because certainly today, if you look at what all the top hits are, I mean, it, there's so little rock it's it's mostly a lot of hip-hop or like dance pop stuff and the stuff that would be closest to rock are sort of these 
countryfied songs uh, that are only sort of. But at that period of time, and it wasn't just in the early 90s, it was coming off period in the 80s also where like rock and roll was uh, could definitely be near the top of the pop charts. Um, but a lot of that was, you know, of course, the 80s had a lot of this sort of like, you know, swaggery sort of cheese glam metal, you know, with Poison and Motley Crue, as well as some more like hard rockers, you know, Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith had made a comeback. Um, and then even even Metallica had a little bit of mainstream success, even though they're like squarely heavy metal. But uh, the point is there was popular rock music uh, in the 80s, um, but um, or in the late 80s. Uh, but but grunge really, really changed it. And, and, and some of their their influences were a bit different. But I think also their their attitude and just their approach to it was very different. And Nirvana, perhaps most of all, just in sort of being flagrantly anti-commercial but the commercial world uh was aligned with them despite that for a couple of years well i think you're you're hitting on something that you know we, we've sort of touched on it a little bit which is that that nirvana really flips the table on pop music and popular rock music of the time you mentioned poison i was trying to think of like what's what's a song that's emblematic of what popular rock music had become by the late 80s and the, the song that came to mind is uh, Nothing But A Good Time. Yeah, and it's that song is. I mean, it is fun. Like I can't say it's. Not, I don't have a good toe tap in time with the song. Yeah, but it is vapid. It, yeah. You know, the the lyrics are. It is a face value song about I want to have fun. Here's my rock song about how to have fun, and here's my you know squealing guitar solo. And what Nirvana did when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, it was so aggressive and so angry and so raw. That it was this emperors have no, uh, the emperor has no clothes moment for everything in pop culture, almost especially music at that point. To say like, you know, what are we doing with ourselves? You know, there's got to be something more to our existence than just this. Yeah, I I think that um, exactly when you take a lyric like nothing but a good time, that I'm sure part of the consideration in writing that is like what lyric is going to get us on the radio, on MTV, maybe a product placement, you know, whatever, just get us in a commercial. And, of course, the lyrics to Smells Like Teen Spirit are essentially in- inscrutable. And um, and also, you know, uh, that wasn't Nirvana's first album. They'd had an album called Bleach, and that's what got them signed to a major label. Because, of course, the reason that they broke big was because they were on Geffen Records, which was a... Um, part of the big Warner Brothers conglomerate and so at the time um, and so um, so so they, they the mainstream people had come for them but again they're, they're if you analyze those lyrics there's no attempt to uh, to get on uh, the radio and in fact later on uh, Nirvana on, on in utero they have a song called radio friendly unit shifter which was a sort of snarky term for trying to you know basically for something like nothing but a good time like like an intentional earworm trying to get on the radio and then in their own subversive way nirvana made that song radio friendly unit shifter completely dissonant and um just antithesis of pop radio yeah i mean it reminds me a lot 
of kind of the way the the music of the late 60s was a response to the music of the 50s and the early 60s mm-hmm. where you know you you have all of a sudden the Beatles are, are and groups like that are saying you know what you know fuck this I want to hold your hand shit let's get weird yeah and it you know it, again let's get political and let's put push the envelope and it radically changed music I think for the better and this was the same thing like music had kind of gotten very complacent you know and, and it's telling because as much as this is a podcast that's going to be about grunge today, I was thinking about this. There was a very similar shit happening in rap and hip hop where all of a sudden you went from like, you can't touch this and ice ice baby. Then the chronic comes out and basically does to hip hop and rap. What nevermind does to rock. Yeah. It's definitely something that's in the, in the mix, like in the early nineties, there's a, we have to push back against this kind of just empty commercial bullshit. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, the um, the the rock musicians who were big in in grunge, they a lot of them were influenced by music that was not very commercial. They did not grow up exclusively listening. I I, I think it would be unfair or inaccurate to say that they only listened to underground music because that's not true. However, people like Kurt Cobain or the uh, people who were in um you know, Pearl Jam or Soundgarden or Alice in Chains, you know, they were growing up listening to, to more uh, alternative music. I mean, Kurt Cobain's mentor was this guy, Buzz Osborne from Melvin's, which is a totally dissonant, noisy underground group originally from the same hometown of Aberdeen, Washington. And that's what he was listening to. He, he liked, you know, this Scottish band called um, uh, the Raincoats that were very, you know, just not of the mainstream at all. And then all of a sudden somebody with this, you know, less mainstream uh, influences comes up and, and, and gets to be the one writing the big pop songs. And uh, you know, the results really change, you know? Yeah. I think this is a good point to start trying to trying to track the roots of grunge because what's interesting is when like you read the Wikipedia article on grunge, it'll tell you that it's kind of an amalgam of heavy metal and punk rock and some of these other genres. And what, what I found in thinking about it is I don't think they sound like any of those things. They're closer to those things because they're louder and angrier, but they, but I think grunge embodies the spirit of those things. So like, yeah, it doesn't sound like anarchy in the UK, but like there's that spirit of like, I just want to make some fucking noise and, and scare the shit out of the squares. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about the sound, of course, is that so much of what got grouped together is grunge. A lot of it just had to do with geography, where bands that were, you know, specifically from Seattle were grouped as being in the same genre. I think that they always bristled at that a little because they didn't think they were as similar. And then if you break them down, the biggest bands in grunge, which would, you know, I would say are Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, as well as some other ones that you know, had their moment like a mud honey or screaming trees or something like that. They're all from Seattle, but their, their influences were a little bit different. You know, Cobain's were more in the, in the, you know, the, the punk sphere. Um, whereas, um, you know, groups like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, they probably were getting more from Black Sabbath, but also Led Zeppelin, um, Pearl Jam, you know, had some punky influences, although their lead guitarist, Mike McCready is like a, Hendrix worshiper, you know, and then Screaming Trees, they had a real psychedelia background. So it it it's 
it, they were grouped together in one genre because they were all in the occupying the same town. But even the group that um, preceded Pearl Jam, uh, Mother Love Bone, with a lot of the same members, they had more of like a glam feel to them, you know. So, so the the influences are more disparate, and I think they get grouped together because of the geography. Yeah, I was trying to think of like what are like proto grunge songs that they would have heard that would have led to the, the what became that sound to the extent that there is kind of a unifying sound to grunge. The song that came to my mind, and I know uh, Kurt Cobain cited him as an influence, is Neil Young and Cinnamon Girl. Yeah. Listen to Cinnamon Girl, the heavy kind of riff on that is, you know, you can hear it. You can hear like, this will blossom into grunge, something like this. Yeah. Well, and Neil Young has that, you know, always did in in the 70s, had that sort of loose, unhinged feel to him. He was not the technically glittery lead guitarist in the style of... Randy Rhodes from Ozzy Osbourne or CeCe DeVille from Poison or Mick Mars from Motley Crue. He was more of just a ragged, here it goes. And that definitely was a big influence on on, on a lot of those grunge people, certainly Cobain and, and the Pearl Jam guys for sure, who later did an album with Neil Young. Yeah, maybe this is a good point to try and define what grunge actually is, because it does sort of defy, it's sort of like porn, right? You know, when you say yeah. It, it's a little like that, but yeah, maybe this would be a good time to sort of get into a little bit of the music theory and talk about what grunge actually is. Well, I think that I think that some of the defining characteristics were partly what it, it what it wasn't. So it was not, you know, about the glimmery, you know, anthemic hooks that were big again with the Poisons and the Molly Crews or even the Guns N' Roses at the time. You know, guitar based certainly. You you almost never hear like a synthesizer or a keyboard on a uh, grunge record. There was probably more willing to embrace minor keys, you know, minor tonalities than some other styles, although there's plenty that um, that are in major keys. But also a, a common thing if we're talking about harmony in grunge music is what you would call a power chord, which means those are chords that don't that they're neither major nor minor. I could actually if you want to just hear I could put it, you know, play it on the guitar. Um, it's it's subtle, but uh, let me just show you what I mean. So, all right, so we'll just play a, um, all right, so this is an A major chord. That's an A major chord. An A minor chord is going to change one note. So the difference is, or, that's the difference. This note goes, that's the only difference. In a power chord, that note is taken out entirely. So there is no uh, major or minor tonality. It just sounds like this. Or. There was no, uh, in, uh, the note would be the third interval. 
there's no third in that power chord. So it's actually neither major nor minor. And and that's a popular thing in grunge music. So the, you know, the famous, ooh. Anyway, so the famous, you know, riff in um, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Those are all power chords. There's no major or minor third in, in either of those. Uh, this first chord, this is an F5 power chord. If it was an F major chord, it would sound like this. If it was an F minor chord, it would sound like this. But it's neither. It just sounds like... So that's a that's a critical, you know, part of the grunge sound. I think the power chord. Well, I mean, so many bands are kind of known for power chord. You think like you know ACDC, yeah, right, yeah, uh, or or Metallica. You mentioned before that it's such a quintessential sound of a hard rock, yeah, track. But what's different about it to me in in the Nirvana version, like, especially like you said, like in that song, think about you know I don't know a lot of the songs on Nevermind, right? Lithium, Come as You Are. All, they all have these power chords, and yet they feel different than, say, the ACDC version. There's almost a feeling of like being adrift. It's like, if you know, what am I listening to? Right? It's like it's it gives you the feeling of like a record being slowder, yeah. almost, yeah, without it doing that. Yeah, well, that's it's you know, I mean, that's partly you know we talk about influence. Is that that's also a Black Sabbath influence right there for sure, as well as ba- intermediary bands in between. Because you know ACDC, um, indeed, they have that sort of like power chord riffing. Although they'll they would be probably more likely to put an actual major chord in their song than some of those um, uh, grunge people. And ACDC is more blues. Exactly. Very bluesy. They're more from that tradition of, you know, the Rolling Stones, essentially, of like a blues rockers. And then they got a little louder and, and more riff based in the Rolling Stones. And then a lot of these grunge bands came maybe, you know, via Sabbath. Now there's these middle, uh, there, there's these bands in between the two that are these underground sort of bands from the Pacific Northwest. I mentioned earlier Melvin's, um, which, you know, again, a mentor of. Cobain's and a big influence on him and a lot of these Seattle bands like Melvin's they're not commercial at all but they were popular among them another is a band uh, also from Seattle called Earth that recently reformed but again not zero mainstream success very slow sludgy heavy 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 music but very influential on those guys um, who are coming up in the Seattle scene and that that is a bit of a missing link between like you know the early slow heavy metal like black sabbath the other uh, uh missing link that i i thought of in listening to this was uh, the pixies oh yes because the the pixies are an interesting band because they they kind of vacillate like from one track to another they'll sound very different they'll change it up and sometimes they'll have something very you know like all the way on the pop end with something like here comes your man um, but st- they could still be very melodic with say, where is my mind? You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's when people will know from the end of fight club, but then they'll do shit. That's like, basically just, what if we just screamed for two and a half minutes? It's like unlistenable 
fucking awful noise. Again, it goes back to that, like, I want to scare your parents yep. kind of sound. And you could, to me, like, there's stuff, especially, like, on In, in Utero, where it's just, like, some of these tracks I have to skip through because I I, I can't listen to this. This is awful. Yeah. It's just, you know, her, you know, there's a, there's a desire to, like, make something that is abrasive. Yeah, like the like the uh, aforementioned radio-friendly unit shifter where he's trying to be, right. yeah, he's trying to annoy you. Um, but yeah, the one I thought it was a setless apprentice, which I think is the second track. Oh, setless apprentice. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Although they really pushed that. I think they even might've released it as a single somehow, which is mind blowing. Yeah, that, that, that is, uh, but you know, again, we, we come back to Kurt Cobain, you know, when he talks about, um, smells like teen spirit, he's, I've heard him make three references to that song. One of them was, oh, I was trying to write a pixie song, um, partly because the pixies were known a bit for like these sort of softer verses and then screamed heavy choruses, um, which, of course, Smells Like Teen Spirit does. The uh, the other one, he, he perhaps the most snarky tongue in cheek was More Than a Feeling by Boston, uh, which he said, oh, that's our, our more than a feeling. And, you know, the strumming pattern's a little like it. And then the last one, which I thought was actually the... Uh, most accurate is Louie Louie um, by the, you know, by the Kingsman or whatever. He goes, oh, yeah, I was just trying to write a Louie Louie. So if you listen to Louie Louie, which, again, is like primitive man rock song. There we go. So Louie Louie is, is, is sort of like, you know, caveman comes out of the cave and wants to write a song. <laughs> And again, that was sort of different key, but you get the idea. Yeah. And, but going back to that, uh, to Louie Louie, again, there's that sort of through line of the spirit of it, which is let's make some noise. It's the fifties version of let's make some noise. And I think what's cool about a lot of these songs, when you go back to these old songs, yes, Louie Louie compared to, you know, what the Smashing Pumpkins was, were doing is incredibly tame same with like buddy holly but you can hear the rebellious spirit in you know rock around the clock yeah like that song still works you know yes the you know the the lyrics don't seem as scary the you know you've got like a one four five yeah. you know, chord progression or something yeah. but it's um it's it's the intent behind the song right you still feel it yeah no i think i think that you know most of these groups come from a subversive legacy and again what would be subversive in different generations obviously varies but but yeah uh and again if you contrast that with a group like poison of course they had their own bad boy image you know or a lot of these 80s bands did but what wasn't subversive was their shameless attempt to get on F- fm radio and mtv or whatever and i think for some of the uh grunge bands they weren't you know i mean everyone wants to 
make a living doing what they're doing. They don't want to be failures and, you know, living on ramen in, in their mom's basement. But on the other hand, they weren't necessarily seeking, you know, superstardom either. So, Well, it's the first time I can remember, like this word is the word that gets kind of thrown around with grunge a lot, which is angst. Mm. And uh, I think when you look at, say, Zeppelin or The Who, uh, these antecedent bands, they're, they're not vapid. Like the stuff they're writing about is it's not, you know, nothing but a good time. Yeah. Um, you know, pour some sugar on me or sh- shit like that, but it's not angst. It's a different, you know, Led Zeppelin is singing about Mordor. Yeah. I, I, I will say some of their early stuff is pretty vapid. A whole lot of love is pretty damn vapid, but, but, but yeah, no, they yeah. later expanded for sure. Yeah. It's not what you associate. You don't associate them with like party, good time, Led yeah. Zeppelin. You associate them with, you know, the, the thunder of the gods yeah you know that's what you think of yeah. led zeppelin or you know punk is more fuck the man fuck the government mm-hmm. and and you get to like pearl jam and it's like yeah i want to write a song about a, a kid who murdered himself in front of his class because yeah. he couldn't process his emotion yeah he, he was you know i mean i think jeremy is worth talking about and that album uh 10 in particular because it's a good it, it pairs well with uh never mind I think those are the two albums that probably did the most to make grunge what it was kind of a one, two punch. Yeah, certainly, certainly in the mainstream. I mean, those were the two, but again, if you listen to them, you know, the question of like, what is grunge? What makes it grunge? I mean, I think they would probably argue that they're not that they would say they're not as similar as the critics would make them out to be that their big connection was both being from Seattle. Uh, And, and in some ways they didn't even completely, run in the same circles there were there were a lot of concentric pieces among the various bands you know pearl jam nirvana soundgarden allison chains screaming trees mud honey but um but you know nirvana and pearl jam in many ways they were the two biggest but they they probably had the least overlap in socially and um and in terms of just the sound of their albums if you listen to that first pearl jam album it's actually very produced sounding there was a lot of big uh, reverb on the drums it was a big thing in the um in the 80s and there more a lot of compression such that pearl jam when they got big later on wanted to they re- went back and remixed the album um to give it a more raw feel because they yeah they wanted to get away from that big arena sound that i think the record label kind of made them pursue well and even 10 sounds i mean they would reinvent themselves to a degree so like 10 does not sound very much like it's follow-up versus mm-hmm. uh nor does it sound like the, the next one vitalogy like they pearl jam did a lot to kind of change their sound from album to album much more so than nirvana did although obviously they never really got the chance yeah but looking at 10 it does have the same sort of like darkness and angst to it and it certainly you know is has way more in common than with nevermind than it does with appetite for destruction yeah oh yeah you know, or uh, the, the bands of the 80s but those are the two albums that I listened to most in preparation for this podcast. And it was fun to revisit them both and, and realize like it felt like this was a moment when like rock could be about something instead yeah. of just being, you know, radio filler. Uh, and that album, especially Jeremy, but, but all the songs on there are, they're pretty weighty in terms of their subject matter, especially because you can kind of understand what they're about compared to Nirvana, where the lyrics are a little more inscrutable. Yeah. Well, one one interesting thing about Pearl Jam, I think, is that it's a bit of the sound. I think, you know, most people, many people would say it's their best album. 
I think what's interesting about it, though, is it is that it's the sound of a band finding its identity because you had these guys, the core members of Pearl Jam were in this other band, Mother Love Bone, that was projected to be like they were going to be the big the big breakout band in a mainstream way. And they had this charismatic singer named Andrew Wood, um, who was much more in the vein of like a glam rocker. You know, he had a little bit of Freddie Mercury in him. He didn't sing quite as well as Freddie, but he, you know, he had a little bit of that persona in him. Um, unfortunately, like so many of these, you know, stories from Seattle, he died of a drug overdose. Um, and then the guys from Pearl Jam, you know, their core group, first they formed group Temple of the Dog that had Chris Cornell in it from Soundgarden. But then they, they were forming Pearl Jam. And then this transplant, who was not from Seattle, Eddie Vedder, um, originally from Chicago, but was living in San Diego, um, he auditioned via tape sent through the mail. And uh, they, they picked him and he flew up to Seattle and joined this band. And the way that Pearl Jam would later change, I think, had a lot to do with Vedder inflicting, not inflicting, that's a load or that's not what I mean, uh, pushing his own personal style um, onto the band that changed him. And I think that 10 is the album that sounds the most like the band that used to be Mother Love Bone. But what he, what Eddie Vedder really adds is those heavier, weightier lyrics because he wrote all the lyrics, even though his bandmates wrote uh, nearly all the music on that album. And you really see his personal style, which does come from a lot more angst and earnest um, expression uh, mixing with these guys who had previously been in a more of a like a glammy style band. Well, the song that I think epitomizes that the most on that album is Alive, because Alive structurally is like an anthem rock song. You've got this kind of soaring. You can picture everyone in the audience singing, oh, I'm still alive, kind of waving their hands to it. And then you look at kind of the subject matter of what the song's about. Yeah. And, it, you know, this is not We Are the Champions, right? Yeah. It's, you know, it's so different. Yeah. Uh, to, to ha- it's like this weird hybrid of like, yeah, we should all be, you know, rocking out to this and, and having a good time. But yet, yeah, this is a song about family struggles. incredible piece of music but it shows you kind of like music is still sort of like grunge is still sort of figuring out what it wants to be so you have this like well we should have this kind of stadium rock song in there uh but this is this is like the the uh the 
teleporter accident that comes out. You know? Well, that and that's a good example. The music to that song was written by Stone Gossard, their, one of their two guitarists, who was uh, one of the guys from Mother Love Bone. And he came from that thing where they were trying to be more anthemic. Now, I'd say Pearl Jam was actually more successfully anthemic than Mother Love Bone ever was. But the point is, uh, you know, Gossard was coming from that world. Um, his working title of that song was A Dollar Short. That's just what he called it. Um, and But he didn't really have lyrics. He just, you know, whatever. And then he gave it to this new guy who was joining the band. And what does he you know, write his lyrics about? It's about this, you know, family and dysfunction where you don't, you know, what you thought was your daddy is not, et cetera. And uh, that was really, you know, that, you know, that, that merging of these two perspectives of, uh, made that song what's so great about it, you know? Because I think if... Stone Gossard by himself or Eddie Vedder by himself had tried to write that song, it wouldn't have been nearly as good. It was the two perspectives coming together. And you can also see that Vestigal uh, guitar solo there towards the end. Like, that's something that, like, grunge rarely has. There's very rarely a moment in a grunge song where it's like, oh, now's the time for this big drum solo or a big, you know, squealing guitar solo to show off our musical chops. It's like, no, no, no. This is not about showing off what great musicians we are this is about what we have to say substantively very emotive at the end that's right and but that's another example though of how these bands sometimes were brought together more by geography than itself because that solo is played by mike mccready who's just a Jimi hendrix fanatic he could play you any hendrix song note for note and that solo sounds like a guy who you know worships Jimi hendrix and um whereas you compare that to a guitar solo played by kurt cobain uh which is much more scronky and you know weird you know it's just totally different uh vibe to it and then you compare it to uh, you know the guitars in 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 some of the other leading seattle bands you know kim thyle from soundgarden or jerry cantrell from um uh, uh allison chains or you know they're all a little bit different yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Alice in Chains because they're an interesting uh, piece in the puzzle. They actually hit the mainstream before Nevermind, which I didn't realize when I was looking back and it's like, oh, Man in the Box was before Smells Like yeah. Teen Spirit, and that was a hit. It doesn't sound, it, it does have that very heavy guitar riff to it, um, but Lane Staley's vocals are not what you would normally associate with grunge they're they're almost more like some like a twisted version of like bowie like they're very weird uh and especially in that song well their background was also metal and glam and i think that pre-grunge uh that first alice in change album was just like categorized as heavy metal basically and one of the early versions um of that band that the lane staley fronted um it was it was called Alice and Chains, like and like Guns and Roses, and then Chains was C H A I N Z. It was sort of a joke, and I think they just stumbled into this actually being their name, and they have mixed feelings about that being their name. But either way, uh, you know, he he did have this like glam and, and 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 grunge background, and his voice does sound like that. And then Jerry Cantrell, the guitar player and and songwriter of that band, he 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 had more of like that Sabbath influence. Yeah, definitely you can hear the Sabbath in that earlier stuff. What's interesting is kind of how they changed over time. The song that really struck me in going back to the stuff of theirs is uh, I Stay Away, which is, I think, they're not my favorite grunge band, but I think that song is pretty extraordinary because to me that is like almost the grunge version of something like Strawberry Fields Forever. Yeah, The way it's produced, it's got all these different kind of parts to it that sound very different. 
Um, you've got that really weird, like, you like stuff in the middle of yeah. it. Then you've got uh, like a, a, a string section coming in. It's really ambitious in a way that's like, this feels like George Martin produced it. side to them and and um you know a lot of that is jerry cantrell who who um you know came from a really humble background i think he's from just somewhere very very rural and just sort of came to music and in a not because it was presented to him but but he just has you know a natural ability and and, and a real curiosity and 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 desire to um explore what, what's out there and yeah they they really were willing to take some risks on that that um jar of flies album and i think i stay away is a great example of that it, it's interesting to sort of you look at say 91 where you've got Nevermind and, and 10 mm-hmm. and you watch some of these artists come out over the next few years and start to push the envelope of what what even qualifies as grunge so again you know smashing pumpkins being a good example where you go from say something like uh, disarm which is very different up through um, you know, tonight, tonight, where you're getting lots more strings and again a more uh, ambitious production that still feels grungy, even mm-hmm. though it's getting more. Um, you know, they're adding in different weirder kinds of instruments. Again, I do see a parallel from you know, again, you're going from like I want to hold your hand to um, you know, ma- magical mystery tour stuff. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Smashing Pumpkins because I think they are a good example. They're not from Seattle, but they had a lot. Uh, in common with these grunge bands. And I think it, it's more appropriate to group them with the grungers than, than some of the people who are also from Seattle, who kind of got roped in with them in a weird way, even though they didn't like presidency United States of America were sometimes described as grunge, but really what they were was from Seattle at the same time. Um, uh, Whereas fashion pumpkins who are from Chicago, um, especially on their first two albums on Gish and Siamese dream, you know, they're playing in a very similar space um, and, and with very similar influences. They had some of the same psychedelic influences that the Screaming Trees did. They also have the clear like Sabbath and Zeppelin uh, influences. Um, and then, as you say, they, they get very ambitious um, on their third album. Um, but uh, but yeah, they, they, they're definitely a kindred spirit to the to those groups. Um, but maybe Billy Corgan, you know, I mean his level of pretty outward pretentiousness a lot of the time, uh, you know, is certainly pretty different from Kurt Cobain who, who, who's outward. Yeah. He had an outward cynicism essentially. Yeah. There are certainly personalities in play, but that that's not unique to grunge. Obviously that, I mean, that's all of music history is littered with these feuds and 
you know, who's who's the pretender to the throne and yeah. all that kind of crap. Yep. I, I, I kind of like that, you know, now with all of that shit in the rearview mirror, uh, you can kind of just go back to the what's actually, you know, recorded and go, okay, what? let's hear what this sounds like. The death of the author, right? You know, let's just hear the music because that's what survives. Yeah. Um, we haven't touched on Soundgarden too much. I think they're another important player here, at least certainly for Super Unknown, their, their big uh, album. That, that's the one you would know from uh, black hole sun and spoon man. Those are the two big ones off of that. Yeah. But I like, yeah, his voice is so different. I, I really liked because when, usually when you associate with grunge, you think of like Billy Corgan and Kurt Cobain, these guys that have this kind of like sandpaper vocals. Yeah. Uh, but Chris Cornell is of the like, you know, Robert plant school with, and for me, like I, my big band growing up was uh, around that time was the who, so having this guy like, oh, finally, well, there's like one more person who's going to sing this way. And he's probably the last one that I can remember. It's yeah. not like, you know, a parody of it. Yeah, no. Uh, his voice, Chris Cornell's voice is really, it's my favorite of, of, of the grunge people. And ironically, he wasn't even the original singer. He was the drummer. Um, and then, um, it, you know, they were having trouble holding down a singer and, 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 you know, the rest is history, uh, and then eventually stopped playing the drums. And I mean, there are some famous singing drummers, but eventually he got out front and 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 started playing guitar instead of drums. Um, but yeah, that voice is is something else. And you know, his famous duet with uh, Vetter on um, "Hunger Strike," the Temple of the Dog song, um, is uh, is is a wonderful example of you know two of the all time classic grunge vocalists. I still think, uh, I, I mean, I have very strong memories of listening to Super Unknown. I remember at some point my sister had a bunch of friends over uh, or something. And so it's just these, you know, her and like four other girls just crowding up the house. <laughs> They're everywhere. I'm like, I have to retreat to my bedroom to get away from them. And I'm like, I'm going to put that on real loud yeah. so they know to stay away from my room. <laughs> tough guy no girls allowed. <laughs> but, no girls allowed. I'm listening to Spoon Man. Well, uh, but since you mentioned that song, can I actually demonstrate something? Because Soundgarden from Black Hole Sun or Spoon Man? What's that? Which song? Uh, Spoon Man or just Soundgarden? Okay, Joe. go ahead. But one one thing you know that gives some of that Seattle grunge music its sort of heavy sound is is a is a very simple um, adjustment to a guitar tuning. So. This is on. Sorry, and this guitar, I, I apologize because speaking of tuning, its uh, strings have not been the most reliable. They're a little bit old. Um, okay, so a normal guitar tuning, it's got the high E here and a low E down here. What uh, a lot of these musicians like to do uh, to give it a heavier sound is they would take that low E 
and they would tune it down to, to D like this and and the effect is that you get a um, sorry this gotta get my string to cooperate okay so and you get this lower this lower sound um, it also makes it very easy to play certain chords because you can literally stick stick your uh, just finger straight across the, the the bottom couple strings and it'll play a a a, a consonant chord. Um, so the Spoonman riff is um, is based on this is based on that uh, that that concept of having that drop D so that he can do. Like that, and that's is that it's got that heavy, you know, that heavy like uh, dissonant, oh not dissonant, uh, just just distorted low uh, rumbling sound, and that that's a key part of the uh, of a lot of the grunge stuff. Not everyone does it. Pearl Jam and Nirvana didn't often do that tuning, but Soundgarden loves that tuning. I was gonna say Super Allison Unknown. Changed. The album yeah. is littered with that. Yeah. Um, the, the title track Super Unknown certainly has it. There's stuff that's like the day I tried to live. Yeah. It's way down there. Yep. Key part of it. And they get that from Sabbath also. Sabbath was a famous detuning band. Yeah, I think also the, uh, in fact, that particular song, I think it follows the same chord progression as like uh, the opening of like Master of Puppets. It's that mm -hmm. like dun, dun, yeah. dun, dun, yeah. In, in a different rhythm. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It adds this incredible like heaviness to the sound, Yeah. Uh, which complements Chris Cornell's soaring vocals really well. Yeah. Uh, the other band I sort of wanted to mention here in this, which I, they're sort of somewhere around grunge. They're like in the orbit of grunge. They're not quite grunge, but they're not quite anything else, uh, is live. And their sound is interesting. It almost feels like there's like weird Eastern influences in it here and there. Uh, and then you get to like, to me, they're super unknown and uh, Throwing Copper, their big lives, big album that has lightning crashes and uh, a few other of their hits on it. They're almost like the, like the last, like off ramp before the end of the grunge era. Um, because I don't think it just ended immediately with the death of Kurt Cobain in 94. No. Like there were, the, the genre had more life in it than that to just oh, yeah. end with him. Um, but it, it, there's definitely like right around those albums is when like the, the commercialism of grunge sort of crept over and you get, what kind of became of it in the late nineties where you start getting groups like, you know, Creed and shit like that. Yeah. Well, live is a bit, you know, you're right. There, there are sort of a, a link between, between those two styles. I mean, well, one, you know, of course they're, they're not from Seattle. They're from Pennsylvania, I believe. And they, um, um, and there are certain aesthetic 
things that are pretty different. I mean, live does put a lot of acoustic guitars in their music, whereas, you know, with the exception of, you know, that Alice in Chains EP, there's there's not a ton of acoustic stuff in, in most grunge music. Um, I think that one overlap really um, is that the singer of live, Ed uh, kind of Walchuk or something like that, this is his name, or because maybe I'm wrong about that. It's a... It's a long name that starts with a K. It might be Kaczynski. Yeah, it's a long Polish name that starts with a K. But anyway, a Kaczynski, whatever it is. he His affect is a little more along the lines of the Eddie Vedders or the Billy Corgans, a little more of that earnest, I'm really going to tell you how it is. I would not put him in the category of Elaine Staley or certainly not a Mark Arm from Mudhoney um, or Cobain for that matter who, who you know, uh, just prided himself on on being idiosyncratic but he is that sort of that link between someone who's a little more outwardly earnest like a vetter or a corgan and then someone later like you know scott stapp from from creed and of course they were being played on the same radio stations that's another key thing you know if you were listening to rock radio in uh, 1994 then yeah, you were hearing um, the latest. Uh, you were hearing Soundgarden "Super Unknown" because it came out, I think, that year. Uh, and then also, yeah, as you said, like "Live Throwing Copper," I think, came out that year too. Into love, the God, into fear, the flame, and to burn the crowd that has a name. Into right. you're also hearing you know red hot chili peppers because they you know they were they were getting big around that time too so there, there was a mix but yeah but they are sort of a i mean yes it wasn't the only music in yeah. the world for sure but yeah. it definitely in fact like i remember uh thinking about uh, uh rem's monster mm. as well which is you know art and no one would call rem a, a grunge band but you look at their their last album before that was uh automatic for the people yeah which is a very mellow album. Like yeah. the big hits off of that are man on the moon and everybody hurts. Uh, and then the response to it is like, no, we got to do something. We got to wake up. We got to do something hard. Yeah. And so they did monster and there are, you know, Michael Stipe's vocals are not grungy at all, but a lot of the guitar stuff that Peter Buck is doing on that album is, is you can almost hear them going like, yeah, we got to keep up with what everybody else is doing. Uh, so you get songs like, um, oh, what's a good example on there? Like, circus envy circus on envy. that song it's yeah. like super grungy yeah um and there's a song let me in which is is supposed to be dedicated kurt to cobain. kurt cobain um of course a lot of people don't realize this but peter buck of rem was living in seattle by that point and, and lived in seattle uh for actually much of that band's existence while uh mike mills never left athens georgia and michael Sipe was partly in athens and he was in new york a lot too but anyway but peter buck was living in Seattle. He was in a different band with Barrett Martin from Screaming Trees. So I mean, he he knew those those grunge guys, and I'm sure 
was interested in what they were doing and yeah his his he, he cranks up his amps and uh uh you know on that album and and um it, it is a different sound for rem I, I happen to love that album but at the time yeah i don't think it did that well because some people were like you're getting out of your lane rem like what happened out of town what happened to uh, uh automatic for the people but um i think that album actually holds up well over time monster well i I saw them live, I think this was around 2004, and they did let me in, mm. in live, in concert, in a concert that was supposed to be basically a greatest hits package, where it's like every song is like, okay, here's you know the one I love, and here's you know, all these R.E.M. songs you know, and they took time out to do a version of Let Me In because of the personal connection, because this was about the death of Kurt Cobain, and it meant a lot to them. Yeah, all those stars took down like butter Promises you see We hold out our hands with our hands to catch them We eat them up, drink them up, 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 up As we're sort of winding down towards the end here, you know, I wanted to sort of think about where we started because when we started about having you come on the show and do uh, a musical topic, you had sort of said, uh, you know, I wanted to talk about how the the first half of the '90s is kind of its own musical decade and what happened at the end. So I think maybe this is a good time to kind of tell sort of the the end of the grunge story. We've been sort of dancing around it, but like how grunge sort of faded away and, and how it changed. Yeah, well, it, it you know, I, I'd be interested what you think about it but one one thing that um became pretty apparent is that there were some sort of low-grade imitators who quickly s- spread it up and a lot of the label executives couldn't necessarily tell the difference between pearl jam and a group like seven mary three where the guy seemed to be doing a uh, eddie vetter impression but the song, there was sort of nothing to it. Um, if that song cumbersome, if you remember that, or again, a guy like Scott Stapp in, in, in Creed, um, sort of preening over these heavy guitars. But I think to some label executives' ears, they couldn't hear the difference. But of course, a lot of the fans could hear the difference, and and there just wasn't. It just started engaging a different group of people. Certainly, Creed was more popular than most of the bands that we've that we've named, but it really wasn't. They lost a lot of. They did. They didn't have the same core audience that uh, that these grunge bands did. So there there's a bleed over where where I think aesthetically there was, you know, some similarity between these people and 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 the people who came up at the end of the '90s. But it, it, there were a lot of intangibles that were simply not the same. I think part of it is, like you said, there's this, these things that become pale imitations of grunge, or you know, even bands that are saying, "Oh, we want to do that," but they don't. They they can duplicate the the settings on the amps <laughs> to produce the sound, but that you can't fake the kind of the what the authenticity that really made like the core grunge experience what it was, right? Like. You look at the, it's the, like we sort of talked about going all the way back to Johnny Cash and Elvis and these guys where you go, you need a rebellious spirit. And once that's gone, 
I think the audience can instantly sense like this is hollow. This is a, a this is missing that. And because grunge became the mainstream, at a certain point, it, you know, it seems weird. Like, what are you rebelling against? You won the battle. You know, the war is over. Yeah. And yeah, and you get these pale imitators, but there's also a certain amount of just mutations that occur over time too. So you think of a a band like Stone Temple Pilots, right? Where you start with plush Vaseline interstate love song. These songs that are like, you know, really, you know, clear, you know, this is grunge, right? You're going to show someone an example of what grunge is. Those are songs that would be in the mix. By the late 90s, they were doing, they had that song Sour Girl, which I don't think is a bad song, but it ain't a grunge song. They had mutated away from it. Pearl Jam mutated away from grunge, you know, into more just sort of general, straightforward rock songs and acoustic ballads and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, Nirvana didn't exist anymore, but obviously the the Foo Fighters uh, came along for Dave Grohl, and you know, it sounds very, very different. It's much more radio friendly. Yeah. More on the pop side. So, I think it's just a combination of all of these kind of like tectonic musical forces pushing it away where yeah it becomes gone but something tells me it's going to come back or something like it because we're sort of musically as you alluded to at the beginning i think we're kind of where we were at the end of the 80s again where most pop music doesn't do anything it feels anemic and mass produced and that's you're you're, you're literally recreating the, the environment that existed in the 60s when things got a got turned over uh, in like 67, 68 when psychedelia came along. You're recreating that moment at the end of the eighties where grunge punched through. And so I'm really kind of interested to see what musical act kind of, you know, again, turns the table over and starts something new. And maybe we're far, we're right at the point where all the kids who grew up in the eighties and nineties influenced by grunge are, it's time for that to make a comeback. Well, I, I certainly hope that one way or the other that, you know, sort of guitar based rock music has another moment because, and it, you know, and there are bands that, you know, that are out today that, that have success with that. But it's certainly not if you look at the top 40, there's, there's almost no songs on there that are just pure on rock, as we were saying at the beginning. The closest would be like country, which is not, it's not quite the same. But yeah, I hope that there is sort of a, we're about to enter an era where that kind of music sounds fresh again um, and, and something that, that people are ready for, because I do think that we are bumping up against 
the edge of what you know one more drum machine and wall of synthesizer song can do you know there's so many of them and and it's time for something fresh and i i hope it breaks through and, and not just from like the legacy bands like you know the red hot chili peppers or foo fighters are still out there sort of doing their thing i i hope it's something you know with a little more of a fresh perspective that's a little bit different from what we're hearing i think we need a couple of like angry 22 year olds mm. to you know basically write a uh a, 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 just a stomping angry song that's called fuck this and fuck everyone yeah exactly. <laughs> you know that you know that that's what we need somebody needs to just come through with a basically a, you know with a be a bull in a china shop yeah. again and it's harder now because we don't have the monoculture we used to have where you had this pipeline of music through radio and MTV. And like, these are you know, the artists you saw on there. That's what you got. Now it's like, that's all dispersed. Right. So every once in a while you get an Adele or a Taylor Swift who can come out with a new album and everybody knows that song, you know, because they're, they're just so big that they dominate everything. But that's unbelievably rare. Everybody else is, you know, scrap, scrappling for the, the fringes of any uh, success in the music industry. So, again, I feel like the environment is right. Like there, there's, there's a fuse that's been lit somewhere and we're waiting for it to explode. I think that would be awesome. As you say, the monoculture that existed even in the 90s is gone and, and it's not going to come back on that same scale as long as there's an internet. So it, it's going to be a little bit different. And it's pretty cool that for a brief period, that monoculture was ruled by these sort of gnarly, uh, iconoclastic, you know, guitar bands that, that, that had that like FU attitude, like, you know, middle fingers to the world. And like, that's pretty cool. And maybe that'll come back again to whatever degree, you know, our, our, our uh, modified version of a monoculture will accommodate. Uh, well, I think that's a pretty good place to end it. If you got any closing thoughts you want to say on Grunge, or, or I think we've closed the book. I would say if anyone is listening to this and, and, and thinks that they should um, revisit that era or, um, you know, or hear it for the first time because they just never got into it, I would say the, the, the some of the great Grunge records to check out. There were only three proper Nirvana albums. They're all great. Bleach, Nevermind, and In Utero. There's also a B-Sides album called Incesticide that's very good. Um, and the unplugged. Oh, sorry. What? The unplugged album. Yeah. So yeah, their unplugged album is great. Um, Pearl Jam Ten is a is a classic, but they have a lot of good ones. Um, Versus is great. The album Yield is great. Uh, their most recent album, uh, actually, uh, which is called Gigaton, is very good. Um, Alice in Chains Dirt is a classic of the genre. Soundgarden had two classics of the genre: Bad Motor Finger and um, Super Unknown. Those are both great. I really, really recommend uh, listening to the Screaming Trees album, Dust, which is their last album. I think that album is absolutely brilliant and just horrendously ignored. Um, the, the, the Trees singer, Mark Lanigan, went on to a great solo career. He sadly died at the beginning of this year, um, but has a lot of great solo albums. So there's a lot to get into. Oh, and I'll throw in one more band, not from Seattle, uh, but a great grunge band that even people who were into it in the era might not be aware of, and that band is called Paw, P-A-W. They're from Lawrence, Kansas, which is where University of Kansas is located. Great band in that grunge style. They have two albums. One's called Dragline. One's called Death to Traitors. And they're great albums, and you would hear that and be stunned that they weren't from Seattle, but they were really great. So, yeah, check well, them out. Well, I, appreci I appreciate the recommendations. 
um, because there's a few on there that I didn't know, so I'll have to go and grab them. Yeah. Uh, so please go to you know wherever you find your music and, and give this stuff a listen because it really does speak to like there's a there's an earnestness and an authenticity to it that is so often from missing from music and it made everything in the it, it didn't just affect grunge. I think it infected the pop music at the time. Everything from the early '90s, I associate with that feeling of like, let's write a song that's about something. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, I think uh, it was really rewarding to go back in time because, man, music is such a great time machine, and and to revisit this time in in, in our lives and you know as young teenagers and preteens, uh, but but that era where it sort of felt like anything was possible. Totally. Um, so. Yeah, uh, I want to thank you for coming on. This was awesome. I'm so glad you're here because I'm you know so much more about music uh, than I do. But uh, Dylan, you want to plug anything before we uh, we wrap it up? <laughs> well, um, on uh, if anyone in LA would like to um, entertain themselves musically um, on January 13th at the Three Clubs in Hollywood, um, two groups that I'm in will be performing. Um, one is called uh, well. When I'm playing guitar for a uh, the greatest British glam rocker you've never heard of named Roger Wodehouse. Um, he is a great uh, British glam rocker. We have an hour-long show of songs that, um, that, that are written by Roger, possibly Grossman written by me, um, but they uh, and, and my <laughs> friends. Um, but uh, anyway, I really recommend that. And then after that is my wedding and event party band, The Moon Units, and we're just going to play uh, for the rest of the night. So that's the three clubs in Hollywood. Um, uh, on January 13th and you can find both Roger Wodehouse or the moon units on Instagram. And those are their names and they'll be, those are their handles, Roger Wodehouse and the moon units. So anyway, cool. Uh, let me do a little ab in here at the end. So, uh, if you like this podcast, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and uh, drop a review, uh, like, rate, subscribe, all of that stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on grunge or on any other topics we've covered recently uh, or the topic we're going to cover next, which is uh, assuming everything goes according to plan, I'm having a guest to talk about D2, the Mighty Ducks, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it's awesome and it's like Rocky Four but with hockey. Uh, and uh, so we're going to do that next. If you have feedback, tweet it to at NostalgiumPod for as long as Twitter is alive. Uh, and if it's not, we'll find another place to send that. We're also on Instagram. So. But until next time, that is one more entry in the Nostalgia Arcana. Oh. Hey. Oh. I'm an for numero uno. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody get a good dead under, but I kiss my ass, sir. Uh.